Oh, yeah? Really? Are we on? That wasn't clear. Hi. I don't know. Was, does that mean we're on? Oh, cool. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to New Polity. Welcome to our podcast, The Politics of Tyranny. And this is our last episode, and I'm excited because I'm beginning to feel like it's, it's spiraling out of control. Yeah, me too, man. You can I'm, only talk about one thing for so long. I, I feel tyrannized by the tyrant. <laughs> oh, no. I by the feel, concept of tyranny. I, I, I don't know if other people feel this way. I start to feel dense. Um, yeah. There's a certain, you have this insight and you think, well, this insight can kind of carry over into other topics. Then you find out, no, no, it, it carried over into three topics. And that was nice, <laughs> but it's not an indefinite thing to make a career out of. Uh-uh. So so we, we offer you our, our limited analysis of tyranny, how it works and what to do about it. And we want to sum it up today mm-hmm. with one more mechanism of tyranny. So we've talked about a lot um, of the ways that tyrants both amass power for private gain and hide it from others. Um, we want to talk about a mechanism by which they do this, which I think is a little paradoxical because in some ways it encompasses all of the other mechanisms, making it fitting for a final episode. And this mechanism is war. War. So war, we're going to argue, is not something that a tyrant might do. It's something that a tyrant must do Mm -hmm. in some way. And it's something that gives a certain amount of explanation to the various other technologies of tyranny that we've been discussing. So with your leave, Andrew, instead of starting with the um, philosophical questions, what okay. is war? What is peace? Right, right. What is the city of God, city of man? All right. <laughs> um, I want to get there, but maybe to to clarify this first, let's start with our own age, our own tyranny. Let's look at liberal modernity, such as it is, um, and ask the question of how does war operate within our society in order to benefit tyrants? Again, tyranny is rule for private gain. Mm-hmm. So whenever we're talking about a mechanism of tyranny, we're talking about something, some ordering of society, some injection of fear into a society that makes that private gain possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to do it. You have to order society in some way because if you don't, if it's just a naked attempt to rule for private gain, then you will be killed. You, your tyranny will be ineffective yeah. as we've discussed. So maybe maybe the heart of it would be that war war rests upon the existence of an enemy. Yeah, totally. Right. And the enemy – and one of the things that characterizes the enemy is that his good and your good are not compatible, mm-hmm. I think. Right? So like it's, it, it, it has to be framed in a zero-sum sort of game. Absolutely. Okay. So the, the enemy wins. That means you lose. That seems to be the heart of war. Yes. So when faced with an enemy, then your you, – you need to win. <laughs> yeah. Your options are win. Win or die or die, right? Or 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 become enslaved or something, sure. but lose, right? Lose, There's yeah. no like mutually beneficial um, outcome. Now, I think in a liberal society, the 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 war there's there's actually two or more um, sort of fronts, hmm. right? So I think I think at a, at a philosophical level, you have you have the the, the beginning point of liberalism, which is that that men are at war with each other as individuals. Yeah, right. All right, so we we begin in a state of war. Mm-hmm. And that and that that's the sort of natural form of human interaction at the individual level. Yeah. And that and so the state then or the tyrant we can say can position himself as the one who manages the war. 
All right, so so this is a sort of indirect form use of war, I think, for the tyrant, and it's maybe the genius of liberalism that they can do this, because really my perception is that I'm at war with you, mm -hmm. and then the state is the one who's going to keep you from winning. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> or, or you know, and and that's a that's a good deal for me. Okay. So I so so there's that there's that aspect of it I think within liberalism, but then I think there's also within liberalism we've talked about the um the at war being at war with inadequacy any sort of like yeah. um limitation yeah, right absolutely so we're at war with scarcity we're at war with um unhappiness yeah you know and when we talked in the very <clears throat> the very beginning um in the garden you had the presumption of scarcity being the kind of maybe it's the first sin maybe it's the precondition for the first sin I'll let the theologians parse that one out, yeah but. right right <laughs> but um this idea that human nature lacks mm -hmm. uh, you only envy divinity insofar as you're cursing humanity right and that's precisely what you even then adam do um that day under the tree and what we've spoken of throughout these episodes is that what what a fundamental curse against humanity does is it makes people always available to manipulation and to motivation mm -hmm. right if if there is always something lacking then there's always some thing that can be offered in order to fulfill that lack, right? And this goes, and, and, and to say this is the attitude of war is very literal. I mean, you said war is a zero-sum game. Well, what that means is that insofar as the enemy is always there, then it's always an immediate danger. Mm -hmm. And there's always the availability to motivate or manipulate within the context of war. That's right. I mean, this yes. is, and I'm not saying anything like, incredibly difficult if you go into someone's peaceful home and say hey everyone run out the front door they won't but if you go into someone's home and you say hey the house is burning down yeah everyone ran out the they front will. door they will right <laughs> when life is threatened when when that sort of either i win or i lose really is the mentality of uh, an individual however you can affect that then you can make that individual do things and mm -hmm. what is fundamental to tyranny is that you have to provide motivations that aren't natural to the person because right. the person naturally works for the good, for the common good, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to, and for his individual good within that common good, but certainly not for the good of others at his own expense. That's right. So the lie, the lie, <laughs> the lie is that we're at war when we may or may not actually be at war. Yeah. And, the lie is that the house is on fire. Now, the, right. the, the point is not that there are, there are not real wars within this. Um, and I know we want to talk a little more about where the tyrant is using something true about humans that they are at war. Mm -hmm. um, but the point is that in, in a real material sense, um, tyranny must deny the attainment of peace because wherever peace is attained, that ability to motivate beyond the nature of man or say below or outside the nature of man goes away. Mm -hmm. Tyrant loses that much more of his capacity. The more that there's people that say, well, I won't do what you say here because I'm, Everything's all right. Right. No, that's right. And the war and the, that lie then facilitates or, or makes possible, I guess, the ordering of society on a military footing or on a war footing. And this is – so like sometimes maybe it's hard for people to see this. But if we think about – if we make it – if we look at it where it's just obvious, like the army itself, yeah. right? Like why is the army ordered the way it is? But more – I guess more, more importantly for me would be why does the individual soldier submit – to the army like why does he become a soldier in the army and uh, and agree to its regime yeah right and it's because 
he perceives that army to be necessary because of war, right? Whether, you know, war or potential war with, um, to defend things that he loves other than the army. <laughs> okay. Totally. So, so like, so my point would be like, you think about a soldier's life and that he has a far reduced set of rights than, than the non-soldier he has, you know, he has, is his life is regimented. Yeah. He's a, be in certain places, a certain, in certain times. times you have to live some, you don't, you don't have self-determination. You don't, you have to follow orders. I, I was an, I was an army brat. Yeah. Yeah. My brother is and a career army. There's and, the phrase, which it's kind of a cliche, but home is where the army sends you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> on yeah. a lot of walls. Yeah. And yeah. And so you think about, you think about in a soldier's, a soldier's life and the way, the way he, the way he's not a normal citizen, but is really his freedom is restricted and yep. he's, he's, you know, he's a soldier. Okay. So the point would be that looking at that paradigm allows us to then see, okay, the militarization or the, 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 to put society as a whole on a war footing is an opportunity or of extending that sort of thing yes. further into society as Absolutely. a whole. Right. And, and in the same, for the same reason that the individual soldier will join the army, society as a whole will, will accept a, 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 a army like ordering yeah. because it's at war. Yeah. I don't, right? I, I think that this might come across as purely anti military or something. Oh, and no, I, no, I think, no, no. That's, I, but rather what I, what I think, what I think is being said <clears throat> is that actual war is in fact the only justification. For tyrannical forms. Yes. I mean, what I'm saying, that is exactly what, like, war necessitates war, which is something that is a, a perversion of the cosmos, right? Like, it's, it is because of sin. Mm -hmm. It necessitates forms that, that are themselves, um, uh, tainted by the sin, you know, that are themselves. So, so, so like Augustine will talk about, you know, some form of ser servility yeah. has being appropriate it, because of sin, because of the reality of sin. So, sure. so now some men will dominate other men, but that's because right. of the imperfection of society. But because it's in an imperfect state, that a certain degree of dominance and servility is a part of the perfection that's possible to it. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. So, so no, I mean, you think about the fact <laughs> that within the army, insofar as it is, um, facing real war its structure becomes justified right you right. have like well you need to obey unquestioningly and without participation in the reason of those who are above you mm -hmm. because of the uh, you know, the ex it's expedient right and because you're not actually living in peace right which and so you 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 are faced with an enemy um so so like the idea that that peace emerges out of say dialogue and conversation and like a culture moves out of emerges out of that peacefully when there's an extrinsic enemy yeah. right that's not happening yeah right that enemy is not a part of that dialogue right right and so it you can't if you just if you retain the the perfectly peaceful form you'll be conquered <laughs> right, absolutely i mean you have to counter the enemy right. and to counter him is not a, like a sin right right because it's it, it, it and i think we can maybe a way of thinking about this would is to bring it down to a very small level like you brought down you you brought up you know lying about the house being on fire and you can see a similar sort of thing i think maybe in in the imperative to self defense sure. so we, we we started out in the very beginning of this podcast talking about the two forms of power 
I think, and St. Thomas talking about how there's the power of the, the sort of power that a father has over his son, which is the power of love, which is a power that is deployed for the good of the one over whom it's wielded, mm. right? But then the other form of power is the power of the master and the slave, which is wielded for the good of the powerful one and not for the one over whom it's wielded. Mm -hmm. And we, and we, in all of this conversation that we've been having, we're, we're sort of expounding that servile, servile form of power, master, ser yeah. slave form of power. But the thing is that itself can be just that form of power. So, so let me put it this, let me put it this way. So if your house is being invaded, if your house is being, if, there, if there's a, a burglar who's breaking into the house who's armed and is threatening your family, right? He's, he's intruding into this house and violating the peace. He's, he's at war with you. Mm -hmm. That your use of, of force, your use of power against him to stop him from doing that is not for his good. Right, it's 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 you're not wielding that power for his good. Now you always have to be open to it. So like, were he to surrender, were he to right. stop th just... at that point, then you can say, okay, now there's an opening for for peace here, which means there's an opening for me to wield my power for your good, to include your good in in my power wielding. But for as long as he's attacking, yeah. that's not the case. Sure. And so I am deploying my power over him for my good, not his. Well, though I think the difference. So we say that we say that there's a that the condition of war, which you're kind of zooming in on here, mm -hmm. um, justifies tyrannical forms. But it's important to point out that, that it's never identical to actual tyranny, because what's different mm -hmm. in this situation is that while you are not um, wielding your power for his good, and you cannot wield his power, wield your, your power, power for, for his, his good, good. right? Um, nevertheless, you're also not wielding it for private gain. That's right. So it's half. Okay. It's half the form, right? Half the form of tyranny is yeah. is just war. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it and and the thing the thing would be is that in a sense, like from the perspective of the invader, yeah, you're you're wielding the tyrannical form. Yes, absolutely. Because he doesn't know your ends, nor does he care. <laughs> right. Yeah. right? Yeah. But but yeah. So it but it so but it's not for private gain, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not actually tyranny. Um, and that is the decisive difference because that's the difference that opens it up f to peace, right? Absolutely. That's and, the... and there's and I don't mean to get us off track <clears throat> no, here, no, but no. In, in your you've enlightened me with a lot of your research, and a lot of it's in your book, um, Two Cities, on the kind of moral reform of the knights and of um, then going into the Crusades. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me like this was precisely what the church dealt with: that there is a there is a warring that ha can be holy mm -hmm. insofar as it's fundamentally open to surrender and it gets and and you know the, the preaching against any kind of um rage and war, any kind of vengeance any yeah. kind of delight in right. blood right that sort of thing yeah. um becomes the christian war ethic mm -hmm. um because it's essentially looking at that like how do you how do you war in such a way that you can always say i'm not doing it for private gain which could include something like pleasure vengeance you know right um and say but i'm gonna stab this guy because he's an invader that wants to kill my children yeah right, <laughs> right. <laughs> both of those have to be held yeah uh, and that seems to be the what the church's response historically gave us the image of the crusader or the just knight that's um, right yeah and now yeah. we're a little lost on that i think sometimes but, yeah uh, but once we have that principle in play we can see then how what appear to be tyrannical forms 
can have a place within a just society because sure. because a just society which is where in which power is not being wielded for private gain yeah. it's still being wielded against sin yes right and and when it does that so it's it's being wielded against tyrants yes little tyrants big tyrants whatever i mean yeah. it can be criminals it can be it can be the tyranny inside your own soul the places sure. where you're vicious right but it's being wielded against against um imperfection um, vice sin and when it does that it takes on that sort of half tyrannical form that we're talking about yeah. so so you have there there's a place for propaganda there's a place for bureaucracy there's a place for even punishment cruelty we called it cruelty there's not a place for cruelty in a formal sense but like punishment. but something that appears that way right or, or is felt that way yeah. right um there's there's a, a place for the enforcement of norms that are sort of extrinsic right these things these things can all be versions of me fighting the intruder and coming into my home totally right and it seems what's different what's fundamentally different is that within tyranny versus what we might just call just war uh -huh. um, or it's, that comes with loaded with a lot of ethical yeah, questions yeah. so maybe maybe the better thing is just to say that half tyranny of um defense right uh, seems to be that the church good men fighting as they should is always dynamically open to that end of the war that's right so that's what it seeks right it seeks peace it seeks peace whereas within a tyranny the um but it seeks peace not of its own making what do you mean what what, what i mean is it, it seeks the peace of order of the yeah. cosmic order yeah, yeah right so so oh, so a just warrior when the other surrenders he welcomes him into the order of brotherhood that men live in under under the divine rule of the mm -hmm. cosmos he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't have to enter them into a peace that he creates through his dominance sure right so it's not your surrender is not now you're my slave right and this is what maybe you mean by the presumption of peace that like once war is done, there is a real peace to return to. It's not mm -hmm. just that war needs to establish and continue. That's right, and that's the difference peace. because because if you look at like Saint Augustine, he'll talk at great length about how even the most tyrannical people are seeking peace, but because peace, the the, the pursuit of peace is a human constant. He thinks, and I think he's right. But where they're different, where the tyrant is different from the just man, is that the tyrant thinks that that peace is only to be had under his dominance. Mm, yeah. He's the source of peace. Yeah. Right? And what he means by peace is I get whatever I want. Right? But but that and, – and, and, and because of that, he's perverted. Right? He's And, and really the way, the way Augustine talks about him is that he's aping God. Well, yeah. I mean you can see how if it's not <laughs> – how – if you are going to be like God, um, you would have to be able to provide the peace and the sort of, how do I say it? That they, you would never be satisfied with just some limited number of people being under you, that there would always be the desire to ape God all in the sense of a universal kingdom. Universal yeah, all, you need all of, all of it, right? Which is the reason why you never find peace. Yeah. Right, you never actually achieve it, but I mean that's one of the reasons. Not only externally are there are enemies, but there's always enemies internally because human beings 
in their natures are in communion with God and the cosmos, not with your fictitious world that right. you've built. So you can never exhaust it. Well, let's, right? let's, so. and let's let's <laughs> narrow in on this man-made world because I I think I think people have a sense of this that um, if you want to order society unto your private gain, um, then the continuation of a war of a and and I would argue it has to be a sort of material war because um, you're building a material world. You're trying mm -hmm. to make a man-made world in which you are at the top of a of a hierarchy here. Um, that this can be really easily seen in the extension of things that are just in accordance with actual um, threats, with actual war, with actual disaster, um, into the common life of society. So they're never allowed to dissipate. Peace is never allowed. Um, to really arrive right so you see this in like peace is always sort of deferred yeah yeah i mean there's ways in which you can just see this in recent history um so what do i mean well if you look at something like i don't know something simple like wartime production so it's a common story that i think we've all been told that what really kicked off the era of mass production and the sort of American dominated uh, era of consumption yeah, production right, right. <laughs> were the wars, mm -hmm. um, which by which the um, people, there was no real distinction between, you know, soldier and someone now going to work in a factory in order to produce everything that the soldiers needed in order right. to win the war. There was a sort of everyone's involved. Yeah. 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 Total people. mobilization. Exactly. And, and, and what we found um, is that that is a form of life. You can live, you can create jobs, you can create families, you can create an order mm -hmm. that comes from the production of war goods, things that are necessary to defeat the enemy. Mm -hmm. And you can already see within the war propaganda how like, well, it's necessary to, you know, and I'm not saying any of it's not true. I think it is true in reference to the real war, say – Okay, you got to save money for the sake of the troops. You've got to plant gardens in this way for the sake of the troops. You have to get all of the women. So I was say into, the women into the factories. Into the factories for the sake of the troops. Now, right. what's obvious, just historically, is that we didn't stop doing the things that we started doing. So women in the factories is obvious. So it right. wasn't like okay, war's we over. We won the war. Now I can go back home with the kids. Absolutely not. It, it, was, <laughs> it was a deliberate propaganda extension of. Um, a new image mm -hmm. of what normal looked like. Peace looked like mass production. <laughs> sure, we're not necessarily mass producing. Well, we still are actually producing the bullets and bombs. I mean, this is still... I, I, I hesitate because sometimes, you know, when people talk this way, they get into that whole, like, uh, industrial military complex um, meme, I guess. Yeah. Where, where, and the, but the, the argument's true just because it's... It is true. Yeah, like that our economies depend on weaponry production. Yeah, it forms a, such a significant part of our of our GDP that you can't you can't deny it as like, well, this is just something we could. Stop I know, doing. I know, and, and, and you always you always hesitate because you start feeling like you're going down some sort of conspiracy theory road. Yeah, yeah, because you're like, and then what's necessary is that we 
every once in a while destroy it all. Yeah. And it's like, and, it, and you feel like, well, necessary was someone making that decision yeah, and people yeah, thinking yeah. that, but then things like our leaving Afghanistan happened. Right. And we're like, wait, hold on. Yeah. We really did just sort of destroy 20 years worth of military equipment. Better build it <laughs> or up. just left it there. So are we going to do it? Yeah. But you know, so it's like, it may not be, it may not have to be some sort of a, a, a scheme. Actor or, yeah. It's so much as just like, it's the dynamic of the, of the structure. Well, and what I, and, and, and maybe, maybe this will help us get away from, such conspiracies and such. Yeah, right. Yeah, is to say that what we really learned in the war experience and what probably everyone learns in a war experience is that um, the production itself um, can benefit tyrants. So right. what I mean is it doesn't have to be bullets. It could be beanie babies. It doesn't have to be. Yes, that's, that's exactly. I was going to say that the, the, it doesn't have to be that we're just, that we're building tanks and then blowing them up. Yeah. It can be that we're building TVs and then throwing them away in a year. Right. It, well, and then getting more TVs. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like what is, what is warlike? Like, let's just, let's just think again of what we're saying. We're saying that the tyrant utilizes war by making it a permanent feature of society as mm -hmm. opposed to something that has a real possibility of ending. Right, and then right. when it does end, a real change in society, which goes from we are at war to we are at peace. peace. Right, and maybe the fundamental sign of this is the existence of the standing army, because if you compare what's different about our nations to uh, Christendom, really, right. is that for us we always have an army. Mm -hmm. um, there's no like mustering of of troops. There's no okay, respond to a particular need by getting the guys. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's professional and it's constant. So the presumption of war, while not guaranteed by, like I can see an argument, well, you have a standing army because you're just training and keeping soldiers, you know. Yeah. But by and large, the existence of a f massive standing army, and it is massive, um, is evidence that the presumption of war is continued, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, I think, I think that's right. So, yeah. but in our, in, in our then economic life, mm -hmm. we take on war-like um, characteristics as a people. So you think about what happens when we undergo a recession, right? We're all told to buy things. What? Well, it doesn't matter. Right. Like the actual process of produ producing, buying and selling must go on or else we die. The economy collapses, mm -hmm. right? So it's the creation of a kind of economy that needs to operate at scale that benefits the tyrants and then can't be stopped, which is only, like that kind of um, language of it cannot be otherwise. We must right. do it this way. That's war language. Yes, I think that's, that's that right. yeah. zero sum game, win or lose. And and I would argue that the kind of um, extension of the language of competition as being what's most fundamental to production, to making things, mm -hmm. is just the extension of the state of war into the very bottom level of like entrepreneurship. I think so. Yeah, like, that's right. To to spend money to to um, sell things to produce things is described as a competition in which someone else's success is your loss, and that this happens on an individual level within like the way we teach people in business schools, and then it happens all the way up to a national level. Like us not selling means that China's going to win. Right now, is this true? Yeah, right now it's true. <laughs> well, it becomes it can become true. It's it's uh, you know war war. It can become true because because non-Christian orders war with each other, yeah, yeah, right, and and that really is the case that they're at war with each other, yeah. right. But it but it is but it is important to see that what you're talking about here, the connection between the army and I think a standing army is a really good thing to call out, just historically speaking, because it 
it, you know, historians are always hesitate to make causal arguments because you can't always tell which direction things are going, but you can make, you can definitely make arguments that these things are happening together at the same time. Mm. So they're re fundamentally related that it's obviously the case that the creation of standing armies and the creation of, of administrative states, mm. bureaucratic states, tax collecting states, states that are capable of regulating the economy because they're states that have now tens of thousands of officials, states that manage whole territories in, in, in order to, I mean, in order to facilitate the standing army, in order to pay the salaries to the standing mm -hmm. army, in order to have enough money to train them, right? That these are, these are totally connected, yeah. right? Intimately connected. And even the emergence of propaganda, like just obviously the case. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, I mean, if you want to see modern propaganda, the emergence of it, uh, well, you can always push things back further. But if if you look at something like the French Revolution, you'll start to see where where, where we have the first the the first citizen army of of a sort, like massive army, right? Mm -hmm. Massive army and total mobilization of the society to support that army. Yes. Since the Roman Empire, I mean, the idea of like a citizen army is a is something that the, the pagans had. It, it it ceases to exist during Christendom. Well, I feel like I've heard the story before. <laughs> <laughs> it ceases to exist and then reemerges in modernity, right, right, right. right? Of a of an army of the able bodied men, basically, and then the whole mechanism behind it to support it. Well, in order, part of motivating that whole operation is the creation of the what what will develop into modern nationalism, mm -hmm. which is and then the propaganda and secret police apparatus that perpetuates and the censorship machines that make sure that the, what's being printed is the right stuff, right? So you're you're off to the as soon as you have the creation of what is un, what, the, what as soon as or, Europe is sort of reordered according to what's unleashed in the Napoleonic Wars and so reordered into these centralized national states with large standing armies and mass societies, yeah. then you have a, 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 an essential a essential aspect of that development is the creation of mass media. Mm -hmm. um, and so that means the invention of propaganda. And it comes into, it, you, you start a lot of experiments with this in the 19th century, but it really comes into its own leading into World War One, where propaganda as a scientific endeavor is developed um, in order to motivate not only the soldier, but the the fighting at the, at the home front, which is in the yeah. factories, the production, the yeah. fight, the fight for production, right, as well as the soldiers, that then and that then the 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 science of propaganda literally becomes the basis for the marketing, the development of marketing after the war. I mean, like literally, like the same people, right? Like literally, we learned how to do this. We can apply this to selling stuff, <laughs> right? And and so. Yeah. And then, and then this even becomes even more perfected in World War II, where the same people again go to work in propaganda, and then come out of the war and found the huge ad agencies in New York City. Right? Like this is this same is people. the same people, the same guys. Yeah, yeah. like it's the same people. <laughs> it's not like oh, aren't these related? Yeah. It's like no, it's actually the same people right, so doing the same thing with the same mechanisms, the same techniques, the same rules that they've learned. Right, right, right. Right? And so the... And then the transformation <clears throat> of our society into one which is fundamentally and constantly open to mass information. Right. Whether by billboard or radio or, you know, moving on until now where we are accessible by our pockets. Right. But I think it's really a, an essential aspect is that is the idea that you learn what's going on by being told it. Yeah. Not by seeing it. Totally. 
right? Yeah, like, we, I mean, this was part of our discussion about propaganda. Right. That's what's sort of fundamental and unifying to all its various Yeah, as you're being told it from forms. out without. And that, and that always has, I think, a war footing to it, right? Well, wouldn't because you say it's, that it's obviously justified in the case of actual war? Yeah, then it is. Because it's like if, you, if we're in a war and you tell me, like, go into the other room and get munitions, if I'm like, well... Yeah, or if you say, or if if you say, "Hey, I know you live in, I know you live in like whatever Alabama, but let me tell you something: uh, Wyoming is under attack." Yeah, sure. Right? It's like I don't see that. I'm I'm two thousand miles away. I move, but I I need to react to that. Right? We need to react to that. So I'm being told what's going on. Mm -hmm. I'm being informed. I'm being, um, you know, what we need to do as a people. That and that. So there, that form of communication becomes necessary in war. So you can see already how the forms that we've spoken of, propaganda, bureaucracy. Um, and yeah, the, the ability to, in, to, to organize and transmit will, orders, yes. strategy um, univocally, yeah. like across populations in order to counter an enemy, yeah. which is the, sort of the mechanism of bureaucracy yeah. mm-hmm. is necessary. Yeah. Right, right. And, and then moving this outside of wartime and into peacetime has obviously been the trajectory of our society. Right. And we would argue the trajectory of any, any good tyranny. Yeah. Um, well, now the problem then, and, and I would point to two other things cause it's worth doing. One is that the, the transformation into a warring state also always involves a destruction of diversification of diversity. Yeah. Um, right. Which is, we, I think we've discussed this as one of the paradoxes of liberalism, that it promises a sort of um, multiculturalism, a multi, like uh, everyone's pursuing a diversity of ends. We're becoming like a very differentiated people because yeah. there's no one church telling us what to do or something like that. Yeah. Um, but then the actual result is uh, homogeneity. Yeah. We're just totally, we're, we're, we're Places the the and most people. extreme homogeneity <laughs> conceivable. Right. Look very similar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so we've been discussing this as sort of a, a failure maybe of the liberal project, but it seems it, from this perspective, it's also – you can see how um, it belongs to the transition from a presumption of peace to a presumption of war. Mm-hmm. That that kind of giving of information, of giving of will, order, all the way down to society requires the actual creation of similarity in the people. So what I'm saying is it's not like accidental that soldiers wear uniforms. Like we are trying in a good army that works effectively against a real war to create people that are very similar. Like we're trying to get rid of all the differences so that orders can be received univocally. We don't we don't want diversification of culture. You know, it's, it's we don't very, want diversification of language and – and yeah. this is the actual formation of of when you talked about um, of um, you know Napoleonic France, right? But really, just every single nation state of modernity um, became what it was in and through the destruction of local difference. Absolutely right. And I think it's not just that they're like mean and don't <laughs> they know what they knew what they were doing. Yeah, they're they're, they're at war. Yeah, they're at war. Right. Um, that's that's right. I mean, you know, it's it's funny or it's interesting that we bring up the middle ages as the sort of foil, right? To sure. say it was different in the middle ages. And that's just, that's just true that if you look at the, the armies that were assembled, like the crusading armies, the yeah. huge armies, yeah. but, but, it, but it can, you can look at the smaller armies and the same principle as it played. They're exactly not uniform, oh, right? Really? So like, not only do you have, um, uh, forces coming from the different kingdoms, but underneath the Kings, the the forces that are raised are under the lords and under the lords they're under the knights and they each at each level they have their own coat of arms their own colors right, their own their yeah. own hair and they're organized in these totally diverse units so if you to see a to see a medieval army on the march would have just been 
a a phenomenal just like just hodgepodge like a, like a mosaic of different colors and yeah, different yeah. uniforms and different forms of armor and different totally. and different loyalties yeah, you know yeah. it was exactly not uniform well but it what it was exactly or maybe not a standing army well not a standing <laughs> army and, and because not a standing army it was israelite what i mean yeah it's, it's like the that, way yeah yeah so like Sorry. we described this uh, man i'm forgetting what we've talked about but it seems to me like we've described the israelite army and, and the way that they're they never um, homogenized in order to go to war. It was a muster, and it was always a muster of the particular families. Right. And even, I mean, you read the scriptures, that became even the differences became problematic when they wanted to go to war like the God Kings would. So there's language barriers and stuff right. that gets discussed in the, um, in the Old Testament. Right. Um, okay, but so you can see then what we take to be as, I think, typically. Maybe I'm wrong on this. It seems to me typically when people look at liberal modernity and they try to explain the differences – Almost everything they explain could be described as a part of the total militarization of society. Mm -hmm. And that uh, we don't need to flesh, or we don't need to give flesh to the whole argument here, but it seems that the maybe seed or the beginning of this is in liberalism's positing of war as a fundamental condition of, of man. Right, which, then, which, which, is, which is another way of saying. That scarcity is constant. Yeah, that situation in which you can be told what to do and you must do it because it's a zero-sum game between you and an enemy. Yeah, that's right. Always applies. Always applies. And, and it seems like – and you can see then it's not to say it has no dynamism. Like obviously we can become less convinced of an enemy really being the enemy and so one – um, obvious features of Western society or really maybe just modern societies is – a constant sort of cycling through and reshuffling to find effective enemies with which to make that vision of war true and for it to really, you know, I mean, Rene Girard writes a lot about this and, and, and it, well, I say he writes a lot about this. This is actually all he wrote about. I mean, um, it seems ridiculous in a lot of ways what, because it seems so sort of cliched as that you hesitate to bring it up, right? That the idea that you need an enemy, but if you look at history, you know. um, just recent history. I mean, just look at like we go from World War II where we built this monstrosity, this regime, straight into the Cold War. Mm -hmm. As soon as the Cold War ends in 1991, we're all like twiddling our thumbs and not quite sure what to do until, thank goodness, 9-11 happens, yeah. right? And now we, have, now we have the war on terror. That starts to peter out, right? And it's like, oh, we don't really have enemies. We can't really make China our enemy because we make too much money off that. So you know what? North Korea, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. Okay, we better find internal enemies. Mm -hmm. And so now we have the whole COVID thing going yeah, on. Yeah, we have the unvaccinated. And so and so now we're gonna. Now it's it's it's. And there's a double irony there because within the unvaccinated as the enemy, um, vac <laughs> vaccination like the ability to effectively medically manage an entire population in a homogenous way is obviously itself a military effort. Yeah, obviously. It's, and not I don't mean this like philosophically. I mean it historically. Like that's... the military. <laughs> this is this is why there's like a sort of you know. We don't need to go too deep into the details of a lot of this, but like there's a sort of weirdness to the soldiers and stuff right now who are resisting the vaccines or whatever when yeah. like part of being a soldier is they stick a needle in your arm and give you whatever they want. Right, right, right. <laughs> right? I mean it's like you're going to Africa. Here you go. Yeah, Boom. Yeah. It's like what was in that? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to Africa. This is the <laughs> shot they give us, right? You know, and 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 but the point would be yeah. that the 
the militarization, like extending that, yeah. that sort of managing of bodies, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is there's an appropriateness to within the military. Oh yeah. Again, like it's becomes not... extended into society. And this is why I say where there, there's, there's a, the critique needs to be careful because it's not that what's being said is, well, these things are like bad in themselves. What's being said is that they are appropriate and good insofar as you have to operate the half tyrannical form because there's a real, because there's a real enemy. Yeah. A real enemy. It's real. The enemy, the devil ultimately. And I mean, and it I, never goes away in the church militant. We're may, always fighting the enemy. Well, I think we should discuss that. Okay. <laughs> Maybe with a slower buildup. It, it okay. does seem to me that you could describe <laughs> when people sort of vaguely think of like modernity getting worse or like having this kind of decline of built into it somehow or, or just feeling that, that it's because every point of greater militarization will always hurt. Like it, it will always meet this resistance as, and I'm thinking of vaccination, but then I'm thinking of, you know, you know, in some ways vaccination is like an obvious way of extending the military regime into life in just some small area that hasn't really received it. And it has like, I mean, the medical management of national populations is a thing. Yeah. Yeah. But like, it's just, but it's just sort of bumping it up and bumping notch. it up, bumping it up. And, and yeah. so, and, and over an internal enemy is, it makes it, makes it fairly difficult. Um, and I, so I, I think there's, I think you can kind of look at society uh, and this is just, I think a good Christian attitude, like without Christ being the end of a society, um, then what you get ultimately is war. You get war with other pagan societies who are after um, not any kind of universal good that can be shared, but are after tyrannic tyranny. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And yeah. So what we need to discuss then is what, what the Christian, I mean, if this is true, if this is a true analysis that, um, that war and the, um, false but convincing, um, declaration that the war is always ongoing and that the enemy is always present is in fact a mechanism and maybe the mechanism of, of tyrannies. Um, and that for the Christian, you can only do this in a, it's only justified in a kind of half halfway justified All right. um then what is for the christian the reality of war and how does that and how does that both differ but i think what we ultimately want to talk about is how is it the more the genuine source of tyranny in the sense of like the good that's corrupted within the tyrannical vision yeah so i mean this is a very this is a very well, subtle, and maybe, and maybe we're, we're getting into a very well, subtle thing. But I think I, it's important to say that I think when people hear this, then the immediate vision they have then is is then well, then the Christian must be the one for whom um, war has no place, right? That, so and you jump is, to this yeah, other right. side, the opposite, pacifism, which is just like, completely untrue. Yeah, I mean, Christianity is a form of warfare, um, like and what, that's biblical. I would say <laughs> quite, quite, quite. I think yeah, but Christ came to bring the sword, right? And also just. Yeah, that's right. And in in the tradition as a whole, we understand ourselves to be at war. Yeah, that this is the church militant, right. right? And and the war is, I mean, I guess the most sort of general way of describing it would be that that what Christianity in time is, is a movement from our imperfection to our perfection. We've talked about this before when we were talking about inequality. I think the movement from the imperfect to the perfect. And the imperfect is not merely imperfect in the sense of being undeveloped, but because of sin, it's 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 the the disordered, yeah. right? The perverted, and so the movement from the disordered to the ordered um, is is what Christianity in time 
is essentially, right? So it's, it's what that means is that it's like St. Augustine will talk about how the virtues, the virtues in, in our condition include within them essentially the warfare against the corresponding vice, mm -hmm. right? That the virtue is a form of war, yeah, right? And, and that, that, that is only the case because of the fall. Had that had the fall not occurred, we could have enjoyed the virtues without without reference to the corresponding vices. But that's not the case yeah. anymore. And so we have the, the 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 cultivation of virtue itself is a form of warfare. Right, which means there's a truth <laughs> into saying that all politics is a, a form, form of, of war. <laughs> right, because the what politics, the end of politics, is virtue, and is is the right. movement from the imperfect to the perfect, which means that there is war in it. But the thing that in that war is is always present, right? So like, it doesn't matter how holy you become in this life, there is um, areas of, you, uh, uh, of, of your personality that are not yet perfect. Um, and so, and are still, are still wallowing in some degree of sin. And so there's a war being waged there. And this is, this is something that happens individually with the Christian in his own spiritual life, but then is also social, it's a social reality. Totally. So one of the ways of thinking about this would be then if the church, if the church is the movement from the imperfect to the perfect, mm -hmm. if that's what the church militant is, mm -hmm. then imperfection or sin is, is, is a, a integral to the church. What I mean is like, this sounds, I know this is probably sounding like very dubious to people, but if they understand what I mean, I think it, they, they might not, is that part of being a true Christian is knowing that you're a sinner. Mm-hmm. Right, that and 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 a, and the Christian is the one who identifies that himself as the sinner. Yeah. So, like, what I mean is, so what that means is that his sin, as a personal phenomenon, like a, I am a sinner, like my sin, is essential an essential aspect of of Christianity. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so so Christianity, then you might say, in that way of thinking about it, is sort of in its nature corrupt. <laughs> Because like in its nature, it, 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 it includes its negation. It includes virtue is the, is the perfection, but the, the very existence of Christianity, like what it is in its essence is the dynamic movement between vice and virtue. And so it, it includes within it a comprehension of its own undoing, right? Yeah. Its own negation. Yeah. Right. Um, which is very unique among among sort well, of yeah, I mean, systems. I compare it, I, well, it doesn't seem very systematic. I mean, I can, no, it's not a system. I, yeah. I can I compare it to the ideologies, right? Where, in mean, liberalism or, or nationalism, socialism, um, the those are forms of life which presume that imperfection can be done away with. That's right. If we would just do X, Y, and Z, right? Whereas yeah. Christianity does seem to be the only form that says not only will imperfection never be done away with, but what we are as Christians is a war on imperfection. Oh, on imperfection, that right. will never. <laughs> but but and it's weirder than that because it's not just saying like it's a war that will never end practically, as if there's some like practical point at which we could yeah. end. We just aren't strong enough or something like that. It's it's paradoxically saying that well, this war has both already been won mm -hmm. by Christ, and we will only ever enter into the fullness of that victory when all our efforts cease. That's right, and it becomes it becomes grace pouring down from above, and we become sorted in the in the final. I mean, this is this is this is a, the plotline for Augustine's City of God, which I, it, you know, is pr profoundly important to the way I think about things. Mm -hmm. But that that this mingling of 
of sin and virtue, this mingling of the good and the bad, is present within the church herself um, as she moves towards becoming the church triumphant, which is the perfect city of God. So the city of God on earth is a city of God, a city at war, Yeah. right? Um, but it's at war grasping in hope after that final victory that's already been won, that's assured to it, yeah. right? So it's it's battling towards the victory um, uh, that is hope, or that, that it, so in hope, the victory that right. is true peace. Right. So as progress is made, though, peace is really extended. So it's not this sort of um, total depravity notion of, of, oh, we're always at war, so the war is always the same magnitude. No, that's not right. Like yeah. movement into peace is real. Yeah movement into the calming of the heart is a real thing, the right. assuaging of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And when that, as that occurs, the war becomes more focused. I mean, it's like, it's like you're pushing the enemy back and you're mm -hmm. winning. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and that's the, that's the, um, that's the sort of objective, strategic objective of the, of the city of God. Now the city of man, which is the tyrannical city, right, is also a mingling of order and disorder because, because disorder can exist other than a disordering of the order. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Right. right so to, there have to be goods within a pagan city. That... So what's weird weird about it is when you think about it this way, it's like the the city of man is is always really an aspect of the city of God. Okay, and I know that sounds because because the city of man, like like the example Augustine will give is that you know a man who's hanging upside upside down by his feet is disordered. Um he's not supposed to be hanging upside down by his feet, right? Mm -hmm. That's a disordering of man. But the reason, and that that disordering causes him pain, mm -hmm. but the reason it causes him pain is that he's not actually disordered in his nature. Right. He's not supposed to be hanging upside down, and right. he is hanging upside down, so it hurts, right? right? So he's still a part of the order, yeah. the cosmic, and he can't escape that, yeah. right? And so my the, the point I'm getting at with the city of man as being sort of an aspect of the city of God is that the city of man is also a mixture of peace and war of good and evil vice and virtue and so but it and but what's happening there is that there it's instead of ascending towards peace or ascending towards a, a more perfect form yeah. it's it's descending so it's attempting to replace peace with war yeah. it's attempting to replace virtue with vice right, right? um and so it's it's still this the one humanity is some are waging the war up and others are waging the war down. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, this is this is the sort of form that that Augustine take shows us, you know, mm -hmm. and that it, it'll be not until the end of time that the final sorting occurs. Yeah. So right? it does seem like a it's not the case that I mean, nothing could be further from the case than that <laughs> that war is not a part of the Christian life. Um or that somehow the negation of war is what's meant by Christian politics, but rather, I mean, there's a few things that seem to happen in, in distinction to a tyranny, namely the enemy um, in a tyranny is useful. And so the object within tyranny is always to continuously produce the enemy yeah yep and this is what i think is particularly nefarious about tyrannies is that is that they don't actually want to win like they want to hold out an enemy and say your peace depends on victory right but they don't actually want the extension of that peace because then all those mechanisms by which they gain from the war go away right 
Whereas within within the Christian society, when an enemy is pointed out, not only do you want to destroy the enemy in fact, but then you want to lose, you want all of those tactics that uh, socially and, ind and individually you take on um, in order to defeat the enemy to be provisional. That, yeah, absolutely, right? And, and you don't really want to, that's how you you only want to destroy the enemy insofar as he's an enemy. Right. Right, like you want to destroy the the enemy in him, not, yes. not him. Which is why, when, <laughs> well, and this has always puzzled me, right? That, you know, St. Paul will say things like, well, we're not at war with flesh and blood, mm -hmm. uh, so, which seems a little silly given that Christians were being murdered. Murdered, but like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure looks like it, Paul. Um, when he talks about we're at war with the powers and principalities, and then when, when the, the kind of enemies are listed for the Christian, it's sin, the flesh, and the devil. I think one of the effects of, of turning, um, our martial or our warlike aspect to ourselves and to definite enemies that are not just human beings that have that opportunity to become right. no longer our enemies. Right, right. Right. Is that it, I mean, on the one hand, it's a way that we work towards our salvation, but on the other hand, it's a way that we prevent the lie of tyranny. Mm -hmm. Because when the tyrant says, well, the enemy is now whoever, the Chinese, the unvaccinated, whatever. Right, yeah. <laughs> a Christian is in is in the position to always know who the enemy is, that it's always sin, it's always the flesh, it's always the devil. Mm -hmm. And that the um the true war that never ends is one that's marked by constant progress and holiness. The false war that never ends is marked by constant regress in terms of peace. Like you're just that's constantly right losing more and more of a peaceful society because you're still at war. Right. And those those seem to me to be two paths that are obvious, like two ways of fighting in the world, two mm -hmm. ways of uh, being aggressive in the world, of defending goods in the world, is to is to work towards a genuine extension of peace right. into more and more of your individual and then social life, um, or to be more and more scared <laughs> and mm -hmm. so uh, extend more and more war into... Uh, peaceful existence. Right. No, I think that's, I think it's... Uh, but you see I'm saying that Christianity has a kind of a preventative effect on the world, that it's like, don't don't be fooled who the real enemy is. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why it seems to have penance and humility like built into it, because at any point where we're saying things like, this is the cause, this person, this nation is the cause of all of our woe and anxiety, like a Christian can't actually believe that. I mean, no, he's taught in fact, from the I beginning mean, that, that it's that sin, Christian, original sin, and his Christianity. Own... I mean, the biblical, the biblical take on all that is often very sort of disturbing in the insistence that your external enemy is a punishment for your sins. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's always sort of like, really, man, that's the way this works. Yeah. But, but I think one of the things that we've tried to do is see how it, how that's a truth sociologically, yeah. not not merely not merely in a sort of just mystical sense, but in a sociological sense, like like your your tyrannical, your sinfulness yeah. exposes you to the enemy. Yeah. Like your enemy becomes more efficacious against you because of yeah. your sin. Yeah. Right? Um, I think that's true. I think it's also why Christianity, when it's really lived, is so obnoxious to like socialist ideologies or, or um, because it, it's just not it's not a fun person to be in a room with because you know in, in an ideological world you have everyone pointing at an enemy and saying like uh, we're at war with x and if we defeat x all will be well and the christian is the one that's constantly saying like i am responsible for our continued yeah uh lack of peace 
Yeah, and who says nothing and easy. who and who always says, well, maybe maybe we could just convince him to be a nice guy or something. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like the enemy. No, I mean, really, this sounds like sometimes people. It's like you read Leo the Thirteenth or something. You know, you brought up socialists, and that always brings me back to Rio Navarro, and and the socialists are positing these kinds of this sort of absolute class war. Yeah. And then, and then Leo's response is something like, "Well, no, actually, like, there's no reason why rich people and poor people can't just get along, be friends, friendship be, between be, the like, classes, brotherly love." Yeah. And everyone's like, "What, dude? Seriously, brotherly <laughs> love?" And it's like, "No, seriously, actually, seriously." Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, it's so. I mean, I, and I'm confessing this. So this is this is not. I'm confessing this as a as a impulse and a sin on my own part that there is something so very liberating about not being responsible for the problem. There's something so very liberating about all about war that all of life seems to be narrowed to a point where everything you want, everything good is attainable through a singular destruction that's right. visible and material to you. Yep. Right. And I think it's especially liberating for people who are guilty Christians, right? Is that there's a rebellion of conscience that knows that there's no uh, that peace isn't possible except for yourself becoming a peaceful person that kind of knows that yeah if we destroy that enemy i'll need a new one because this right. is what's getting me excited no you i know see yeah. this so in it's, politics. Like, it's, it's almost see... like a form of procrastination or yeah. self-delusion isn't <laughs> yeah. it? it can be pretty juvenile oh absolutely especially when you posit your enemy is i mean, but I mean you, right but... when, you, when your enemy becomes like the well it's it's the it's the you know, global pedophile regime or whatever. Like, it, on the one hand, maybe you've got some evidence. Uh, that might be. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Might be probably. <laughs> it's definitely the most believable. Yeah, of all the, of all the conspiracies. That's but the on the I'd... other hand, it's <laughs> why does it excite people? Why is it like what's driving so much of politics? It's like, well, it's pretty sure that you can do nothing about that besides be made righteous in your opposition to that's it. That's right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's correct. It's, it's funny. It's it's weird. Um, how predictable these things are. The, it, um, you know, you when you study history and, and you study, say, the Nazis with the Jews and and you read about the kind of language they used, oh, the, the Jews, it's necessary that they're the sort of universal enemy. They're the internal contagion. They, yeah. they start using language of disease. You know, they start using that kind of um, – that kind of language, they're responsible for all of our suffering. Yeah. Right. right? They're responsible for all this. They, um, and then, and that's always used as a sort of textbook example of this kind of mechanism. Right. But then you see it so clearly. I mean, we see it just in our day and age right now, yeah. right? Where the, oh, so much so that the language of contagion, of uncleanness, of yeah. dirtiness is being deployed again. Yeah. And of, of their, of this group is responsible for all of our suffering. Right, right, right. Right? Even though, even though. Really? Even though, in fact, the suffering, <laughs> the, the mo most of the suffering is is inflicted by the one who's telling us that this group over here is responsible for all of our suffering. Right, right. Absolutely. Right? So it has this, like, weird abusive element to it, this kind of, like, weird, why are you making me hurt you yeah, yeah, yeah. type of a thing. Do you <laughs> know I what I mean? I love you so much. <laughs> yeah, I love you so much. Why are you making me hurt you? You know, it's like that kind of yeah. that kind of a thing. But, the, but, the, but how susceptible people are to it. Well, like, wonder... they want to believe yeah. that they can point at the enemy and say it's those people's fault. That I feel this way. Oh, it's so lib I think I think it's because once you have established an enemy like that, you're free from Christianity. Right. And I think that's what people really want. Right. They want to be absolved from I mean, we are obviously as a as a society, a heretical and increasingly pagan society, overdue for penance, for you know, 
Yeah, I read somewhere the only mass production that's going to save us is the mass production of hair shirts. <laughs> no, that because the war, the Christian war, yeah. like we've been saying a couple times now, but it bears repeating, the Christian war is first and foremost a spiritual war that each one of us wages. Right. And and that out of that war, we're capable of waging the external war, right? And what we're waging the war against uh, externally is the imperfection or the sin in our brother. Not, right. not, so it's, it's, it really is an extension of the same war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? The spiritual war internally to. Right. I must fight my selfishness and then and I, fight I might it when fight, I, see it I must others. fight your selfishness. Yeah. Right. And you're always I, included in any attack on the enemy. But the sin that the other has is always in you too. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, like so, and so. And in fact, to the degree that you can recognize it in you is the degree to, to which, which you, you can, can wage it justly against right, them. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, and I think, but but don't you think that it's like this is where the enmity production of modernity is actually getting its fuel? It's like you said it maybe a little cynically, in the sense of like, well, why why are we so easily fooled? Right. Like, isn't it just completely on the face of it ridiculous that this group of people is responsible for all of our problems? Like, isn't yeah. fanaticism? Yeah, ridiculous? yeah, yeah. That's what we. Yeah. Well, it's like, well, okay, but what if what if the human person is is a warring person. Like, what if Christianity is true? Right. Um, <laughs> and the historical narrative is one against sin, which is total. Like, it, there, you are always at war with sin. Mm -hmm. it, and it, there, there is a place in which you can say, all of our anxiety um, comes from here. All, mm -hmm. of, but, but what has historically been pointed to, well, really, since Christianity was victorious, in Europe, <laughs> what historically has been pointed to is, is, um, always includes, again, sin, flesh, the devil. It's always including the whole society. So mm -hmm. it's always, yes, there is one thing responsible. It's sin, and it's my sin, and it's your sin, and it's our sin, and it's it's we can fight it, right? So so what I'm saying is, it seems like tyranny is riding on. A kind of inheritance by which we do blame one thing, right? No, I see, and that's yeah. our distance from God. Yeah. That's our dis our disobedience and our decision, and then our social structures that just cement yeah. that disobedience. And it was, it was Christianity that revealed that to the world. Like, oh, this is why you're so scared. This is why you're enslaved in military regimes. This right. is why you're worshiping men. It's because it's because you have been convinced that the battle, right, is this world that it's material, right? It's earthly, but it's not. And so what? What St. Paul is saying when he says, hey, it's not flesh and blood, it's powers and principalities, is liberating, mm -hmm. which means that it's not flesh and blood. Therefore, a tyrant can't just point out this flesh and blood over here and get you motivated again, doing another big you know, yeah. war machine that's going to build your whole economy and society, and then you're going to have to replace it and replace it. No, it's with powers, principalities, it's, it's with yourself. And and the church is militant in the sense that it is the thing fighting mm -hmm. this one cause of our problems, which means that every tyranny has to be a pseudo church. Because that's what they are. Yeah, say, that's right. That's what has to say. We found the one mm -hmm. cause. We found the original sin. We have the redemption. And but they make it earthly. They say, and it's this guy. Right? Yeah, yeah, no, and that and that and it's that maybe Jim. gets back. That <laughs> helps maybe maybe put some flesh on what I said. Okay. When I was trying to say that the city of man is sort of a part of the city of God. Yeah, yeah, it has to use it because the city of man is is human. It's made up of yeah, humans. Yeah. Right. And so and so it, and the city of God is humanity per, being perfected. And so it it yeah it war the use of war is is heretical, <laughs> right? Like it's it's mm -hmm. like. Because it, it it's not, and this is an important idea. Like, why is it that tyrannies 
everywhere adopt this. And it's because of what you just said. Well, because man is at war, yeah. right? Like that's who we, <laughs> that's who we are and yes. we all know it. Yes. So it's like, we feel it. We're at war. So are we at war against the true enemy or a false enemy? That seems exactly. to be the distinction. Exactly. And right? the church is the one that in, in her mercy unveils the true enemy constantly. Right. And I think that's what we don't want. And so, so when we talk about liberalism as a tyranny, um, I think we have to remember that the genius of liberalism is to take that war and arguably, theoretically, have it as every man, you know, against every other man. But historically, it's a war against the church. That's right. That's so what, what I mean is exactly like right. every every <laughs> every word to the contrary of tyranny, every word that says, you know, it's not an earthly salvation, it's not an earthly problem that I mean, it is, but it's never just an earthly problem. Itself becomes the earthly enemy. I mean, that's the genius. It's like mm -hmm. it pulls the church down to earth and then says, well, and now our rebellion is against, I mean, really any tradition. But but against these people who are telling you it's not earthly. Right, yeah, exactly. That's just a tactic of their earthly domination. Exactly, yeah. The priests are telling it because they want money or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, yeah. I know, I know. Yeah, the war, the war against the church and the extension of of the the real war into what what was peaceful is yeah that's the tactic so like so like the you know morality is the oppressor right. so we destroy it yeah. we're at war with with morals yeah for example and people say that though <laughs> i know i know yeah 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 and then war becomes the the lifeblood of the society, it becomes the lifeblood of the economy, it becomes the justifying reason for acting one way versus another. And it just seems to me that, you know, when I read the Old Testament and I guess it's, the, how I put it, the nations being at war seems strange, seems a lot stranger than it does now. It just seems like this is the alternative to a universal church. Mm-hmm. This is the alternative to a reforming of humanity that wars only against imperfection where it sees it because it has a genuine hope in moving towards perfection, right? Right. No, I think so. And I think this, this, this universality of war then, of some form of war, is also what, what allows um, for the feasibility of the trickery, right, that, sure. the, that the tyrant can perform, mm -hmm. right? Because we're already all sort of oriented towards towards some sort of conflict and so that, that they can that they can always use that right yeah, they can always yeah. twist it and 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 get good people to do bad things yeah through the lie that's why the lie works right mm -hmm. because it has a grounding in reality yeah 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 well that's tyranny for you the extension of war into peace um and then that's the church for you right the extension of peace, peace into, into war. war yeah right and so it seems i mean sometimes we often try to end with some advice for like what to do but like there's a um there's a reason for the assertion of holiness as being a solution to tyranny that that isn't just a kind of a cop out right because obviously holiness is always the answer you know sanctity of of persons and their society and their social orders is always you know you but but the cop out it often is a cop out people say Oh, just become conversion is the yeah. salute. But but what what we've tried to argue, I think, is that slavery to vice is always 
at the same time slavery to other men. Yeah. And slavery to other men is always accompanied by slavery to vice, at least sustained slavery to other men. Mm -hmm. And the alternative is, off, is also the case that that virtue is freedom and that freedom and political freedom, yeah. like virtue leads to political freedom and, yeah. and political freedom is only sustainable within virtue, right? Yeah. And so when we talk about conversion as being the solution, the spiritual warfare as being the solution, we're not saying that as if the polit political doesn't matter. It's understanding that human beings are spiritual creatures mm -hmm. and we're both political creatures and spiritual creatures. So these things are bound up together at an anthropological level. Right at a, uh, like at a level of social analysis, yeah, we can see that they're bound together. Right, right, right. It's not just some sort of fideistic thing or some yeah. sort of like uh, extrinsic connection. Like yeah, it's it's a, it's a connection that happens in our very natures. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the, the resistance to to tyranny only happens by becoming socially a kind of people that have the gumption to resist. This, yeah, <laughs> and that is what we historically have called the virtues and and which are impossible to attain without grace. And so mm -hmm. conversion is not icing on the cake. It's not something that would be nice. It's necessary. It's not something that's private. It's not something that's right. hidden away. It's not. And it's not something unrelated to, to, it's not something accidentally related to resistance to tyranny. I mean, the church is established in order to enable people to resist tyranny. Mm -hmm. And yes, it has a much broader understanding than the kind of people that you're probably mad at right now, right? Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the tyrant is the devil and the tyrant is sin and the tyrant is flesh and it's your own failings. Right. Um, but it is also that guy you're probably really mad at. Right? Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. <laughs> and the guy you're really mad at, who's a tyrant, uh, only operates with any kind of effectiveness because of all those other things, right? Mm -hmm. He can only convince through propaganda insofar as people are eating it and he can only convince through fear insofar as we really are not courageous he can only convince you know like we have to become degraded in order for tyranny to work this is what we've said again and again right um so when we talk about the church as the reform of humanity itself we are talking about an institution divinely instituted mm -hmm. to res to make humanity resistant to, to tyrants i mean that's a negative way of phrasing it obviously you would want to say and and that is not a that's not a negative state. That's actual freedom, which is ultimately for love for Christ right. that moves us to heaven, um, and not just to sort of this world Christian utopia or something. Right. But it has to move through actual reform of of this world. Um, Indeed. So it just seems like, in the end, if, if people ask, and they probably won't, what what's the solution to tyranny? It is holiness. Um, but it has to be understood because the pursuit of holiness alone encompasses the destruction of all tyranny. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, I think that another thing that another takeaway would be, um, I mean, that's the most obvious and the most important what you just said, but but would be to see tyranny, to notice it, to acknowledge yeah. it. For us, like when you, as you move through your life and you see power and, and to recognize that power is real. And what we mean is that like powerful people really have influence over less powerful people really affect them from yeah. the top down. Yeah. Like this is a real phenomenon, like powerful people affect weaker people either for their good or for their detriment. Yeah. And to see that and know that and not let, and, and first of all, see it when you have power and make sure you're using it um, properly, right. but also don't let people off the hook. Hold them to account. Right, right. See it, right? Um, know it's happening. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
And maybe this is just part of the, what seems to me like a real movement of the Holy Spirit uh, within Catholics these days is just this sense that our faith is for the sake of the world in right. some way. It's, it's, it is the salvation of the world, right? But that means it's the salvation of all of our institutions, of our social orders, of our politics, of our economics, that when we become holy, when we sanctify the social order, um, we're actually efficacious in the creation of um, peaceful peoples and right. resistance to, to tyranny, which is just its opposite. And so that use of power for the sake of the common good, both in others and in yourself, mm -hmm. is not... Well, there's two things. Number one is that it is rock bottom, the essential way to actually produce the kind of society that we want. And um, number two, it's something that you're always responsible for. Mm -hmm. uh, you're never you're never off the hook, as you said. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, well, we better, better wrap it up. The um, uh, We're going to do one more. It's not going to be an episode. We're going to do a, a Q&A. I want to say January 18th. Sounds totally correct. I really hope it is. Okay. Um, but we're going to do a Q&A where if you guys could take some time to just maybe go through any episodes that you didn't hit um, and form any questions you'd like or that come up um, through this. Because I, I mean, it, to me, it does seems like difficult. I don't know if you, I, you felt that it's difficult. Maybe it's a breeze for you. The what, whole, this whole thing? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah No, yeah. it's very difficult. Yeah. So I get we, lost all the time. <laughs> so far be it from us to presume that you're just like following with our what's already <laughs> difficult for us to say. So, yeah, uh, any questions, we'll try and take them and do um, a Q&A session like we did with the, with the Good Money podcast. Um, and then furthermore, we have our event. It's America Tyranny um, coming up this summer. Um, or, June 3rd. Yeah, June of next year. Um, and so please, if you're interested, um, go to go the website, sign it up out. For that. Yeah. Yep. yeah. All right. And until next time. Thanks. Bye.